All right, good morning and welcome back to our study of Dr. Scare's text on Christology. We have been uh, for a little bit of time now in chapter 6 on the implications of the personal union, looking at the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, and some of his other offices tangentially, and then looking also at the unity of the two natures in one person uh, via the, the three uh, uh, genera, the genus idiomaticum, uh, the genus myostaticum, and today we'll look at the genus apotelismaticum. Uh, that will be found on page 61. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. On page 61, we transition into the third genus, the genus Apotelus Modicum. Uh, just very brief review. Um, we started this section with the genus Idiomodicum, which is that the attributes, just very, very simply, the attributes of either the divine nature or the human nature may be attributed to the person of Christ. So an attribute of the human nature might be fatigue, being tired. So we see the scriptures say Christ is tired. So that's, you know, again, to just flip it, the scriptures say Christ is tired. We see that a human attribute is uh, being placed upon the person, Christ. So two divine attributes, um, knowing all things, being all-powerful, uh, etc. Uh, these things are also predicated, put, to, put upon the, uh, the person of Christ and Scripture. And so that's the idiomaticum. It's very simple. It's relatively non-controversial. Then as we get into the second genera, the, uh, the myostaticum, here we do run into controversy, most particularly with the Reformed. And so if you want to get into that in depth, I advise you to listen to last week's stream, the stream immediately prior to this one. Um, we put forth a, uh, a plea to our Reformed brothers and sisters to join us in a fuller understanding of Christ, a fuller understanding of the Scripture and the sacraments. Um, but in this, in this genus, you really have, uh, you're zooming in on the interrelationship between the two natures themselves. And so you have the, the myestheticum, the majesty of the divine nature, penetrating through the human nature so that the human nature can do things that the human nature of itself cannot do. Um, and, of course, we've got uh, two very good examples of that in the Transfiguration, where the, the human face of Jesus shines with uh, the divine light, and also then where the, the human body of Jesus appears in the midst of the disciples and in the middle of the locked room in John chapter 20. So these would be examples, then, of the myostaticum. Now, the apotelismaticum, as far as my mind works, and maybe yours differ, I mean, all of these can be pressed to the point of being quite technical and quite difficult, no doubt about that. But as far as explaining them in the simplest manner, as I've attempted to do this morning, the apotelismaticum is the simplest of all, at least as far as my way of thinking. 
and that is simply that whatever Christ does, both natures do. So you, you just, otherwise you end up by definition with, the, with two Christs. If you say Christ did this according to this nature, but not according to that nature, you end up with two Christs. You end up with a Christ who's doing this thing, but not doing this thing. And the apotelismaticum just unifies them down so that what they're, what they're doing, they're doing together, the two natures, because what the person is doing, he is doing. And so I think relatively simple, but very important. So without further ado, let's get into the text. Very bottom of 61, the last paragraph on the page. The third genus, the genus Apotelismaticum, is defined this way by the formula of Concord. In the second place, as far as the discharge of Christ's office is concerned, the person does not in, with, through, or according to one nature only, but in, according to, with, and through both natures, or as the Council of Chalcedon declares, each nature, according to its own properties, acts in communion with the other. Again, the opposite of this would be Nestorianism. You've sort of got the, you've got Christ in his divine nature doing one thing, but not in his human nature. Or Christ in his human nature doing one thing, but not in his divine nature. You end up with two Christs. You end up with this two boards glued together, and one board can be said to be doing something, the other board is said to be not doing it. Uh, so the, gen- uh, the genus Apotelis Modicum prevents this. And as you can see, it traces back to Chalcedon. So This isn't a uniquely Lutheran thing by any stretch of the imagination. Scare continues, this is the most important of the three genera because this genus concerns itself with soteriology. Soteriology is uh, shorthand, just the the study or understanding of uh, salvation. Salvation. Soter, I think, is uh, savior. And so soteriology, saviorology, specifically looking um, at the work that Christ does. All of Christ's official acts as mediator, redeemer, high priest, and the others which Jesus still performs, he does as one person with each action involving both natures. Neither nature acts independently or separately from the other, but one nature supports, surrounds, and undergirds the other. The genus Apotelismaticum is a very comforting doctrine for the Christian, as Martin Chemnitz, again the second Martin, probably the second uh, in terms of preeminence of Lutheran theologians, he explains... We wish particularly to emphasize the pertinence of the merits, works, and benefits of Christ the Savior in the church, such as the fact that he is our Redeemer, Propitiator, Mediator, Justifier, Savior, King, High Priest, or Pontifex. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Our Pope is Jesus. We've lost, we've lost this really sassy rhetoric as Lutherans. We ought to be using this all the time in our dialogue with Roman Catholics. Our pontifex is Jesus. Our pope is Jesus. Okay, well, I'm sorry. I got a little excited there. So, yes, he is our, uh, our pontifex, Chemnitz says. And he is also pastor, bishop, teacher, head, leader to life, guardian, Defender, helper, preserver, conqueror, 
and the one who triumphs over his enemies, the one who hears our prayers, who is present to his church, who sees, understands, governs, dispenses, and disposes all things, performs miracles, fulfills promises, gives life, raises the dead, and judges. Uh, put your finger there so you don't lose track uh, here in our quotation of Chemnitz. But if you're, if you're tracking right now through the treasury of daily prayer, we've been going through the Acts of the Apostles, and you see, right, as of late, you see the focus on Paul and on all the miracles that Paul is doing, or rather, all the miracles that Christ is doing through Paul. So the Apostles in particular, the Church in general, is the living body of Christ, the, the unio mystica, the, the mystical union with Christ. We are one body with him, and so as, as Christ does, so the church does. And so Christ continues to do all, whatever, whatever miracles um, and, and uh, whatever preaching, whatever teaching, whatever administrating of the sacraments, etc., whatever that you can say the church does, the truth is it's Christ doing it. You can say in and through the church if that makes you more comfortable, but it's Christ doing it. So an all-important point here, tangentially brought up by Chemnitz's language. Now, just let's pick up where you left your finger. For all of these works and blessings pertain to the person of Christ, not according to either the divine or the human nature alone, but according to both. And the person in carrying out these works possesses activities or operations in both natures and not only in one. These are not things which pertain to the duties and benefits accomplished in only one nature, but in, with, and through both. So, um, what does this actually mean? Well, for example, in the text of Scripture where, where Jesus heals someone, and it is Jesus himself healing this man of his blindness, there's a divine act. And you would say properly that to, to supernaturally heal belongs to the divine nature. But in what way does he accomplish this? By spitting on the ground, by making mud, and by anointing the man's eyes. And so how does he do that? Well, through his human nature. It is of the human nature to have spittle and to have fingers and to make mud and anoint the mud uh, on the man's eyes with his fingers. And so you can see just in that example, uh, both natures at work in the action of the one person, in the act, just what Christ is doing, healing the man of his blindness. You can see both natures at work. And so really, I mean, what nature does, I, I mean, how would you ever say that Christ performs a miracle uh, in his ministry without his body? He's there. He's doing it through his body, through his word. Uh, through his acts, whatever it may be. So, the Apotelus Modicum, again, really shouldn't be that controversial. Really should be kind of one of those... Um, yeah, where, where does it become... I'm just trying to think of the, like, the pop, popular piety of Christians. I should have thought of this ahead of time. Um, could have come up with something, something better. But what strikes me in terms of popular piety is... Around, around about uh, the discussion of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's asking the Father that the, that the cup would pass from him. And, he's, uh, and he ends up saying, not my will, but thy will be done. Very frequently, the way people will describe this is, uh, well, these words are the words of his human nature, not his divine nature. 
in his divine nature, he knew that this is why he came. He knew that he was going to be okay. He knew his death and resurrection. Um, so this is just the human nature speaking. Well, to speak that way, and I understand it's just a matter of speaking, it's just a matter of piety, but to speak that way really is a subtle or not so subtle denial of the apotelis modicum. What the person of Christ does, he does in both natures. We have to understand all of his, all of his actions as such. All right, so let's pick up with the main point then, uh, page 62, right after that large indented quotation of Chemnitz. There, Scare writes, Our salvation was worked by both natures in Christ. The work of the Savior was not carried out by one nature alone, but because of the personal union, the Christian is assured that his salvation has been accomplished by him who assumed the same flesh we have so that we might receive the divine forgiveness through him who is himself God in the flesh. Uh, this is an interesting point down the footnote uh, 26. If you look at the very bottom of that footnote, well, let's just, let's just tear through it really quick. In order that we, this is Chemnitz in his volume on the, on the two natures in Christ. In order that we may more firmly establish the fact that the benefits of the redemption actually do belong to us, the Son of God assumed a nature of the same substance with us and related to us through which, by the power of the deity, he might accomplish the work of redemption. Just as through the human nature in Adam, sin and death entered into the world, so through the same nature in Christ, righteousness and life might be restored. But the righteousness and life in Christ are much more abounding and powerful than sin and death are in Adam. Therefore, it was necessary that Christ be both God and man, and that eternal redemption come by the working of both natures, with the difference of the natures and attributes always remaining under, the class, under this classification, namely the communication of attributes. Okay? So, in other words, in emphasizing the unity of the, of the two natures in one person, apotelis modicum, we're not in any way denying the idiomodicum, that each nature has its own unique properties. That's, that's Augustine, or that's Augustine, Chemnitz's second point here. Um, but, his, but his main point is so beautiful. His main point is it was necessary, necessary that Christ be both God and man so that eternal redemption might come about by the working of both his natures. Now, this is precisely how it's argued in the Book of Concord. This is precisely how the scriptures speak, and who knows how many church fathers. It is certainly, I think, the consensus view of the church fathers that Christ in both natures is, is taking away our sins. But this idea that it's, it's necessary, that's really, that's really been challenged since the Enlightenment and seems to increasingly be being challenged uh, it's just mind-blowing to me, it's stunning to me, it's embarrassing to me. In the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and in those on the fringes of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod um, that often go by the name of radical Lutherans, where there's this idea um, you know, brought into popularity in our time by Gerhard Ferdy and Stephen Paulson and these sorts, um, where the death of Jesus, what he accomplishes on the cross is precisely nothing. 
that describe it in terms of an accident or an object lesson, uh, really having more to say about how much we quote unquote hate the gospel as human beings and thus kill the gospel bringer um, than any atonement. Now, we'll get into this more in depth in the next chapter, chapter 7, which is specifically on the vicarious atonement, uh, Christ, vicarious Christ in our place, making atonement, or the biblical language is propitiation for our sins. Uh, atonement, of course, is, is an English word. It doesn't enter the, the theological glossary until quite late, um, but, a, but atonement, atonement, this um, this word, how is that accomplished? The biblical language is through propitiation, that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we'll get into this more, but I point this out already in a preliminary sort of way because it flows, this teaching flows directly from the Apotelus Modicum. That Christ, it's not as if, it's not as if God up in heaven could simply just say, could simply just say, Hey, everyone down there on earth, your sins are forgiven. I'm not going to send my son into the flesh. I'm not going to have him die on the cross to take away your sins. Just your sins are forgiven. He can't do that. Why? He would not be just. Right? Now, if he is just, then there could not be salvation. <laughs> there could not be salvation. We, would all, we, we all, for our rebellion, would deserve to be cut off from God. Um, so he is just, and because propitiation has been made, because atonement has been made, because our debts have been paid for by Jesus, then he is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So these two things hold together, that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, and they hold together by the propitiation, the vicarious atonement, Christ in our place. And it could not happen in any other way. Your alternative is that God became man just to show off, just because he felt like it. And then Jesus died on the cross just to show off, just because he felt like it, or maybe it was a mistake and he underestimated the violence and hatred and sinfulness of human beings. I mean, this, this honestly destroys the foundation this denial of the vicarious atonement is nothing short than a denial of the gospel. It destroys the foundation of Christianity because the foundation of Christianity is the person and work of Christ. You can't have a more fundamental disagreement. You can't have a more fundamentally different gospel than the gospel of Christ died on the cross to take away your sins, option A, or option B, Christ died on the cross accidentally and it means nothing. You, like that is the difference between light and darkness. You can't have a greater difference in, Chris, in Christianity. You cannot have a greater difference than that. It is a disagreement, disagreement over the personal work of Christ. To tolerate that is unthinkable. It's just unthinkable. I, I struggle with it. I struggle with it so deeply because uh, it's hit very close to home here in our congregation. And it is, uh, it's like, it's just one of those things that it just stops your mouth. You just can't even believe it. You can't even believe it. But this is what we're up against. This is what we've been dealing with. Um, it is surely a sign of, of the last times, as so many things are today. And 
just how quickly evil is speeding up. If it's not the last times for everyone, the sense is that it is for us in the West. And uh, what have formerly been, to one degree or another, bulwarks of Christianity are simply being attacked and crumbling overnight and giving into the just unthinkable and rank heresy. I remember even, I have to do the math here really quick in my head. I think I entered the seminary in 2003. So we're talking uh, 17 years ago. And as I was studying in the seminary, over and over and over, in virtually every class, except those where we were taught Gerhard Ferdy. <laughs> in virtually every class, what was impressed upon us was the personal work of Jesus, and particularly the vicarious atonement. To the point that in my youth and in my hubris, I thought to myself, I cannot believe we are, we are spending so much time on this. Who on earth would deny this? And, and who are these bizarre Europeans or or freaky Americans out on the fringes who actually deny this thing. I mean, to deny this is to deny Christianity. That's so, that was so self-evident to me as an as a early 20-something who knew absolutely nothing about the Christian faith, um, going into seminary and having this just beaten over and over. And I thought to myself, nothing could be less relevant for the, for the, the world that we're going into. Boy, was I wrong. Boy, was I wrong. And boy, were my, our professors correct that what, what is next for us in, in um, American Lutheranism is just unthinkable, that the person and work of Christ would be attacked this way. Well, I'm sorry to belabor that point, but I think it needs to be said over and over again lest we, lest we lose everything. So, once more, Chemnitz says, it was necessary that Christ be both God and man. That was necessary in order that eternal redemption come by the working of both natures. He has to be man, as Chemnitz argues, so that he can save men. He has to be God so that he can save all men. Like This isn't rocket science. It's not rocket science. And the idea that our Lutheran fathers, the idea that earlier church fathers, the idea that the scriptures themselves somehow don't teach this or somehow teach this as a quote-unquote theory is probably the biggest lie and delusion I've personally ever witnessed in the church. And that's saying a lot. <laughs> in these latter days, that is saying a lot. But this is the single greatest lie and delusion I think I've ever seen. It, again, it just stops the mouth. It almost stops your breath. You can hardly believe it. All right, well, on with scare. Bottom of 62, last paragraph there. The Reformed recognized the genus Apotelis modicum, but understood it as each <laughs> nature working towards accomplishing the one work of Christ. Rather than the divine and human natures working in, with, and under each other within the one person of Christ, as the Lutherans held, the two natures for the Reformed, virtually separated from each other, worked towards accomplishing the same goals in Christ. Thus, the natures exist and work side by side in parallel with each other, but without communication. Uh, again, without communication, just stick your finger there, simply because they deny the myostaticum, which is precisely the communication between the two natures. So that, that because these, these three genera 
they're certainly distinct, but because they overlap, where you've got a wrinkle in one, you've got a wrinkle at least in another, in all likelihood, maybe even in, in the other two of the genera. So they can't have communication because of the denial of the myostaticum. So you've now got this distortion in the apotelosmoticum. You've got two boards working together in order to accomplish this thing, which again is not the Lutheran position. Scare continues, on this account, the reformed can call the genus apotelosmoticum the communicatio operationum. As Burkhoff says, each of these natures, or yeah, each of these natures works with its own special energia. So, communicatio operationum, uh, there's the communication of the operation, or of the working, and they each have their energia, and you can see what's happening, like the two energia combine in, and communicate so as to create the, the work, or do the working, the operation. So, um, that's what's that's what's being spelled out here. Richard A. Muller, a more contemporary Reformed theology, correctly points out that whereas the Lutheran understanding of the genus Apotelosmodicum is a natural consequence of the genus Idiomodicum, the Reformed see the genus Apotelosmodicum as separate, quote, according to which the distinct operations of both natures are brought to completion in the one work of Christ, end quote. One of the more difficult aspects of Christology is not only Christ's sinlessness, but his impeccability, non passe peccari. So uh, this too challenged recently in popular Lutheran circles uh, surrounding um, the LCMS or the fringes of the LCMS at least. Uh, the, same, uh, the same fellow that I mentioned earlier, Stephen Paulson, in his book, says that when Jesus is on the cross, he commits his own personal sin. Well, what good is a sinful savior? What good is a second Adam that falls just like the first? Um, I mean, this is just, this is heresy of the rankest kind, and the fact that we're blind to this and tolerate this is, again, it's unthinkable. It's just, it's just astonishing. Um, but, be that as it may, uh, Lutheranism, as, <laughs> as well as virtually every church father, as well as uh, the scriptures very clearly in many points, hold to the fact that Jesus was sinless. So the point of controversy today, unfortunately, in our circles is, was Jesus sinless or not? And, 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 if, he, and if he was, and you hold that, and you're going to tolerate someone who says he wasn't, then you ought to have your head examined, theologically speaking. Well, maybe more than that. Maybe more than theologically speaking. You just ought to have your head examined. You've, you've so lost track of, of what Christianity is, you no longer see Christ as a person. You see him as an idea. I saw a contradicting idea. I can still be friends with somebody who has a hold, holds a contradicting idea to my idea. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Jesus is risen. Jesus is a person. And if someone's going to say to you, to your face, that Jesus, your sinless Savior, the one who bought you with his blood, whose face you're going to stand before, and indeed you do every Lord's Day at the altar, and someone's going to come up to you and say, he's a sinner just like you? Those aren't, those aren't fighting words. Those aren't offensive words. Those aren't fellowship-breaking words. If those aren't, then I don't know what could possibly be. I don't know what could possibly be more satanic than saying that our sinless Savior was a sinner.
But lo and behold, that, that's where we are. As Lutherans, so much for Lutherans leading the way. But the secondary question is actually the more historical question, the more interesting question of the two. Not did Jesus sin or not. That's where we're at now in our depraved age. This is, the obvious answer is no. The deeper question, the more, the, the more challenging question is, was it possible for him to sin or not? Was it possible for him to, to sin or not? And uh, Lutherans have held no. It was not possible for him to sin. Um, again, by virtue of the fact that he's God, that he's God in the human flesh, and the genus myostaticum, that, that uh, the divine nature, the power of the divine nature flows through uh, the human nature, and thus uh, also the human nature, um, you know, it, it, it exists in such a way that it's not to be human means to be inclined towards sin. That would be a kind of Manichaeanism. One can be a human and be sinless, and Christ indeed was. So there's, there's a number of different angles and approaches we can take toward this question. Um, but it does mean that Christ is not, uh, it is not possible for him to sin. I mean, again, think about, it, think about it in these terms. You might say, okay, so what's the biggest objection to that? Well, what about his temptation in the wilderness? Was that just a sham? No, it wasn't a sham at all. It was the devil doing his worst to try to get a man to fall. But what, he didn't, what the devil did not fully grasp is that this man was also God. To really, really, this is where you get to the nitty-gritty. To say that Jesus sinned, to say that Jesus could sin, that's like level one. Level two, more egregious, to say that Jesus did sin, is really tantamount to saying that Jesus isn't God. Because what is sin? Sin is anomia. That's what the scriptures say. It's lawlessness. Sin is to break with the will of God. So if God breaks with the will of God, how can that be? That can't be. Then you've got two gods with two different wills. Now you've got a different God than the Christian God. Um, but if you... Uh, but if you, say that, if you say that he could sin or did sin, then you're ignoring or denying the fact that he is... He is God, and it would be impossible for God to sin. I mean, that's the difference between the philosopher's God and the God of Scripture. So you can, you can get at this question um, in a different direction, too. Can God lie? Can God lie? Here you'll find out if you have a philosophical understanding of God or a theological understanding, biblical understanding of God. So can God lie philosophically? Yeah, well, God can do anything. If there's something he can't do, then he's not God. So, yeah, God can lie. What do the scriptures say? God cannot lie. Why can he not lie? Because he is the truth. The truth cannot lie. I mean, God cannot sin. To sin would be contrary to God's will. How can God be contrary to God's will? He's perfect. He's, he's perfect in simplicity. He's got no confounding variable. He's got no nature like ours that's divided. He's got no sinful nature. What he wills, he wills. So, again, this is a, this is a major problem. It, may, it superficially appears difficult to say that, there's a, that Christ was not capable of sinning, but the more you look into it, the more deep, deep you go, uh, the more difficult it is to hold that Christ could have sinned. And then the implications of, of holding that position really destroy your, your Christology and your understanding of the Trinity. 
Well, let's carry on. So, Scare says, one of the more difficult aspects of Christology is not only Christ's sinlessness, but his impeccability. There's the Latin, non posse peccari, just as it sounds, not possible to sin. On the one hand is the tension between the Christ against whom no one can make the charge of sin, John 8, 46, and the Christ whom God has made to be sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Though he is without fault, he has been designated as the sinner in his role as the substitute for the entire human race under God's judgment. Again, this is Christianity 101. On the other hand, Christ is incapable of sinning. This might seem to contradict his true humanity and make a mockery of his temptation. Humanity as a whole is found in a condition of not being able to avoid sin. Non passe non peccare. Again, uh, just as it sounds. And thus is in an entirely different situation from that of Christ. It has been suggested that without the real and live possibility that he could sin, the temptations he encountered were not completely authentic. This issue must be probed since its resolution reflects our understanding of sin, man, and Christ. The possibility that Christ could sin would presuppose that there exists a neutral third position between holiness and sin. Such a position of moral neutrality has never existed. Man is, is in either a state of sin or holiness or both at the same time. Adam was created in a state of perfect sinlessness. He could sin, passe peccare, but was not destined to sin. Christians live in both states of sinfulness and sinlessness, and at the same time hear the message of the law as God's condemnation of them and the gospel as God's approval of them. This internal struggle within the Christian reflects the larger cosmic struggle between God and Satan. The dead in Christ have ceased from sinning and in their blessed state in the presence of God are confirmed in holiness and are now incapable of sinning. So, I mean, as a tangent... In the formula of Concord, in the book of Concord, when we look at Article 2 on free will, the most important thing to begin the conversation is to delineate the four different states in which mankind finds himself and then, and then talk about which state we're talking about and, and then the question of whether his will is free or not becomes much more clear. The same thing is true in, so, okay, so what are those four states? You have Adam and Eve prior to sin, where they are sinless but could sin, okay? There's, there's the number one state. And really when we're talking about freedom of the will or not, we're not talking about that state. Um, and then when we're looking at the second state, we're looking at after the fall into sin, but prior to regeneration. So man in his sinful condition. This really is the, is the silo in which bondage of the will belongs. Um, man in his sinful state 
can't get himself out of it, can't will or change himself out of it. His, he is bound to his will, and his will is precisely antagonistic toward God. It runs away from God. Right. I, again, it's not as if something is like contrary to his will and enforcing him uh, to do this, uh, coercing him to do this thing he does not want to do. It's precisely the will wants to do it. I mean, we, all, we all know that from our sinful nature, that the sinful nature wants what it wants. There's no conflict in its will. It's not being made to do something contrary to its will. It wills what is evil. That's precisely the bondage of the will. Okay. Then we talk about the third state, where a man is regenerated. He's not yet made perfect, but a man becomes a Christian through the waters of baptism, and he's regenerate. And the, here the formula of Concord says very explicitly that his will has been freed, and he may now cooperate with God, uh, not in salvation, but in his sanctification and the performance of good works and this kind of thing. So uh, here you have the battle of two wills then within a person. You have the, the old Adam who, wills who is entirely bound to Satan and the new man who is entirely bound to God and the old man who does nothing but sin and the new man who does nothing but uh, righteousness and is completely without sin. Um, you can check out 1 John 3 for the sinlessness aspect uh, as well as uh, a few lines at the very end of his epistle. I think that's chapter 5. Um, for that teaching, which is uh, way underplayed, <laughs> way underplayed in our current context. Uh, but but um, this then is the third state. And the fourth state, you can describe, they're both the same, it doesn't matter. When a man dies and ceases from sin and is with the Lord in heaven prior to the resurrection, or in the resurrection of his flesh in the new heavens and the new earth. Both are, equivocally, are, are equivalent. Um, so uh, those are the four states. Now you can also talk, just as we talked about will, or had will in the background via Article 2 of the Formula of Concord, you could do the same thing with sin. And that's really all that Scare has done here with this, uh, with this idea of non posse peccari. What undergirds that again is this idea that to be human, it does, like if you're human, it doesn't mean you're sinful. That's a Manichaean idea. Look, Adam and Eve were sinless in the garden. Um, when we die, we're sinless in heaven. In the new heavens and the new earth, uh, we will be sinless raised in our bodies. And even now, that part of us that is the new man is sinless. Okay. So that actually puts the minority on man as sinner. And Christ is then a man without sin, man in his normal state. The sins of the whole world are imputed to him, reckoned to him. In the same way that we who still have sinful nature and thus are still on the whole sinful and unclean, God reckons to us righteousness, godliness. Right? He uh, imputes righteousness or imputes justification to us. Right? So look, we who are truly sinful are imputed with the righteousness of Christ, while well, Christ, who is truly righteous, is imputed with our sins. And this is precisely what Paul's getting at. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, you see. So the sinless one bears our sins, that we who are sinners might be reckoned sinless by God. All right, well, this is, again, this should be Christianity 101, but apparently this has all become quite difficult for us as Lutherans uh, in, in the uh, beginning of the 21st century here. So, uh, Let's just pick back up with scare then. 64, uh, top, top first uh, new paragraph. 
When man is tempted to sin, he is not in a morally neutral position, but is already in a state of sin. <laughs> That's controversial within, um, you know, Lutheran, uh, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox dialogue, to be sure. Uh, but look, it's like if you're a human being and you're already, you've already got sin that sprung up within you, uh, you're not morally neutral. <laughs> You're already in a state of sin, and you want to simply limit that to a thought and not make it a word or a deed at that point. Adam's fall, Scare continues, cannot be duplicated since he went from a state of complete holiness to a state of complete sinfulness. His apostasy branded all his descendants. No one finds himself in that position again. It is a fiction to believe that any man ever finds himself in a state of moral neutrality. When men are tempted, they are already contemplating sin in their hearts and stand accused before God. Christ resembles Adam in being created in perfect holiness. By virtue of the personal union, Christ possessed, according to his human nature, all the holiness of the Son of God. No part of the human nature was left unpenetrated by the divine nature. I mean, because again, look at this. Just put your finger there so you don't lose your place. But again, look at this. Because it's binary in nature, because it's God or Satan, and those are the only alternatives, to say that the human nature of Christ was not fully under the power of the divine nature of Christ would, you would have to assert then that part of that human nature is under the power of the devil. How are you going to do that? Because where Christ isn't, the devil is. That's what I mean by binaries. You don't, like, there's no other option. So either God was fully in control of the humanity of Jesus, or if he was only partially there, then the devil fills in the void. You can't have that. I mean, that just, there's, I mean, there's no biblical precedent, no biblical teaching. And in fact, that, that heresy leads to all manner of other heresies. So again, this may, this may strike us superficially as difficult, but it really isn't. It really is quite simple, as Scare here is showing. So right where we left off, Scare continues, this is what is required by the genus myostaticum. Sin is defined as absence and the rejection of God's holiness. Any suggestion that Christ is capable of sin necessarily implies that the human nature of Christ did not fully participate in the incarnation. I mean, there's the line to underline. That's like, that's where the rubber hits the road on this, uh, on this article on the, uh, the possibility of Christ sinning or not. You know, again, that if Christ is... If Christ is in any way capable of sin, it implies that that part of him that is capable of sin is not fully participating in uh, the incarnation, the indwelling of the divine nature. All right, let's, uh, let's pick up uh, with the next paragraph. Therefore, did Christ experience a real temptation? Neither he nor anyone else has ever existed in a morally neutral position between good and evil. In addition, as a man, he was completely God. No part of his humanity was left unpenetrated by his divinity. Whereas the first Adam succumbed to Satan in the lush surrounding of the Garden of Eden, the second Adam met Satan after a 40-day fast in the desert. 
He was tempted to renounce his messianic obligations to God, the very purpose for which he had come into the world. Christ experienced Satan's temptations throughout his ministry and most prominently in death. Gethsemane encapsulated what he had experienced all his life and what would be intensified on the cross. It was not simply a matter of Jesus being involved in a moral infraction as defined by the law, but whether he would renounce his messianic duty to offer up his life as the sacrifice for the, for the world's sins. Here was the man from heaven being asked to set aside the first commandment and not let God be God in his life. The taunts of the crowds to come down from the cross were no less satanic in their origin than those he encountered after his fast. He overcame Satan not with a display of his deity, which rightfully belonged to his human nature, but with his reliance upon the God in whom he had put faith and trust. The temptations encountered by Jesus were of a much more profound nature than those encountered by any other person, since he alone felt the entire weight of God's judgment and the total punishment of hell brought on his soul by Satan. His sinlessness and his inability to sin were as much part of his life as was his experience of the temptation to sin by renouncing the work given him by God. The Reformed hold to the sinlessness of the human nature of Christ, but for a different reason than Lutherans do. Lutherans see Christ's inability to sin as an extension of the Incarnation, a manifestation of the genus Maestaticum. The Reformed see his inability to sin as a result of the special grace of God. So as it goes for, as it goes for this topic, so it goes for the miracles then too, um, that the miracles is really God doing it, not the divine nature of Jesus. It's really the Holy Spirit or something doing it, not the divine nature of Jesus. Uh, and, then, and then so too it would be God giving him a special grace so that he doesn't sin, as opposed to being inherent in him as the Son of God, as, as the fullness of the deity indwelling the flesh, uh, born of the Virgin Mary. I, I mean, yet another point where I'd, I'd much rather be Lutheran than Reformed. Just how the Reformed view of Christ's sinlessness differs substantially from the Roman view of Mary's sinlessness is difficult to detect. <laughs> yeah. That's Dr. Scare for you. <laughs> Poking you in the ribs with the very last sentence. How the Reformed view of Christ's sinlessness differs substantially from the Roman view of Mary's sinlessness is difficult to detect. After all, weren't they both just given special grace not to sin? Yeah. So then why do you need the divinity at all? That's the implication. Why do you need the incarnation at all? All right. Well, that was a lively chapter. It was a great chapter. So uh, we covered a lot, of, a lot of ground there, actually. It's funny because I think that that was three chapters. I honestly do. There was the offices of Christ, which seems like it happened years ago. And then there's the three genera. And then there's this question about... Uh, the possibility of Christ sinning or not. Those were the major topics of chapter 6. 
Now, flowing rather naturally, as we've mentioned, from the genus Apotelis modicum, that what Christ does, he does in both natures, and as we've seen uh, Chemnitz say, it is necessary uh, in order to atone for the sins of man, that that atonement be made by one who is both man and God. Um, that then flows directly into chapter 7, the sacrificial death of Christ. So let's, uh, it looks like we've got 10 minutes left. We may as well, we may as well jump a little ways into that. I'm just looking ahead here. Yeah, and then from here on out, it's really smooth sailing in terms of organization. Because we do the, we do the death of Christ, we do the, the, the descent into hell, very briefly. <laughs> Wish we did that more in depth, but very briefly. Then the resurrection of Christ, uh, followed by the ascension and second coming, and that's that. And that's that. So really, really smooth sailing here on out. Page 66, chapter 7, The Sacrificial Death of Christ. First, a quote from the Lutheran Confessions, Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration, Article 8, paragraph 45. For our Christian creed teaches us that the Son of God, who was made man, suffered for us, died, and redeemed us by his blood. What's the power of that statement? Well, the power of that statement is to say that if Christ on the cross wasn't doing anything, then you've contradicted the Lutheran confessions, but you've also contradicted the Christian creed, our Christian creed, the basic creeds, uh, the apostles and the Nicene creeds in view here. Probably particularly, I'd have to think about that if there's one or the other in particular. Well, let me hold off on that. I'll speak to that maybe next week if I, can, if I can find the time to answer that question more specifically. Scare writes, The Augsburg Confession recognizes that the death of Christ was not merely an historical event, but was a true vicarious satisfaction for sin. He dies, quote, that he might reconcile the Father to us and be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of men. End quote. The concept of the substitutionary death explains the assertion of the Nicene Creed. Ah, that's probably the reference to the singular creed, Christian creed. That quote, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Well, a lot that we could unpack there. The Augsburg Confession, Confession, of course, the foundational document of the Book of Concord of the Lutheran Confessions. And so taught not only in the formula of Concord, but also in the Augsburg Confession, um, the vicarious satisfaction that Christ died to reconcile the Father to us um, and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but for all actual sins. Um, vicarious, you can hear in there the language of vicar, and a vicar, to, to be a vicar is to be in the place of someone else. And so uh, a vicarious atonement is Christ in the place of all hum human beings, each of us individually, but all of us corporately. And then satisfaction is, of course, to make up for. Um, you can think of this as if there's a debt, it's to pay that debt. Bring the balance back to, back to nothing owed. Uh, and so that's, that's what Christ is doing on the cross. For us, he's making it so that we no longer 
owe anything to God. We no longer owe anything to just. God is just, but he's not going to exact that penalty from us. He's exacted that penalty from Christ so that he may also now be the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. It's beautiful. Both teachings together. And of course, with that language, by the way, I'm quoting from Romans. So there's the scripture undergirding the Nicene Creed, which undergirds the Augsburg Confession, which undergirds the formula of Concord. And so when someone simply denies the vicarious atonement, you think, well, they've just got another opinion about these things. You need to actually stop and realize, oh, this person doesn't respect the scriptures, doesn't respect uh, the creed, the Nicene Creed, and... uh, doesn't respect the Augsburg Confession or the formula of Concord, uh, perhaps the next question we might ask ourselves is, in, in what way, shape, or form is this person a Lutheran? Well, I'll let you answer that for yourself. Okay, what else do we have here? What else do we have here? In the quotation that on the cross, Christ is reconciling us to the Father and, and, and being a sacrifice not only for the original guilt, but also for the actual sins. Now, here's a distinction that's not really spelled out in in this text, but the difference between original sin and actual sin. So, the things that are of the flesh are opposed to the things of the Spirit. So, simply to be in a fallen state is to be in a sinful state and to be to be immediately in your, in your posture, in your positioning, if you think in terms of analogy, to be contrary to God, against God. Whatever God's for, I'm against. Whatever God's against, I'm for. Before I've actually even done anything. Right? That's, the, that's the original sin that dwells within us. And on the cross, Christ is removing from us the guilt of that original sin. Now, unfortunately, in Rome, that's largely where it stops. And then your actual sins are... You kind of get this idea of he takes away the eternal punishment for actual sins, but now the temporal punishment you have to make up for, and all of these complex and convoluted uh, systems. Others teach even more crassly that he dies for your original sin, but then all your actual sins you have to make atonement for yourself here in this life or in purgatory or what have you. It's just terrible. It's just not, just steals almost all the glory away from Christ. So, what's being said here by the Augsburg Confession, he dies to take away our original sin, but then all actual sins that we've committed, all thoughts, all words, all deeds that we ourselves have done, and there's no other source for them than us, um, he takes away the guilt of these as well. So that's what he's doing by his vicarious satisfaction. He's taking away the sins of the world. We talk about this so frequently as Lutherans, we lose sight of the depth and profundity of this. I've got this cheesy little exercise I do from time to time with the confirmation kids. Say, how many times do you think you sinned in a day? You know, and and you kind of they're scratching their head. I said, well, now wait a minute. Let's let's talk about this. Let's talk about this in the way we confess it. Okay, what about those things you've done? How many thoughts, sinful thoughts? And I'm talking with teenagers, mind you. How many uh, how many sinful thoughts? How many sinful words? How many sinful deeds have you done? Okay, how many things have you left undone? How many things in a given day do you leave undone? Things that you should do that you didn't do. That's like the, that's like the tip of the iceberg is the things we're aware of, you know, the things we've done, the hulking mass that's under the, under the sea. That's the things we've left undone and the things, many of which we might even be ignorant of. So how many things do you, you know, how many, how many sins do you think you commit in a day? And whatever answer they give me, I just run with it. But you start to do the, just start to do the math. I mean, maybe it's a, a couple hundred a day. 
Okay? And you just start to do the math on that. How many days in a year? How many years in the average life? How many lives multiplied by the people? How many people who have ever lived? And the number just very quickly gets astronomical. So that you see when, when Jesus tells the, the, the parable of the, of the man who owned the Lord and Master a debt that he could never pay back. You can see that this is true for each one of us individually. But then to bear the sins of the whole world, how on earth could this ever be done? It'd have to be done only by God in human flesh. And it so magnifies in our poor sinful eyes the passion that we actually begin to glimpse it, begin to glimpse it as through a mirror dimly for what it really is. The heaven of heaven and the goodness of God we can't even see yet because we can't see the passion. We can't see the cross yet as it is. To see the cross as it is will be the heaven of heaven. Will be the paradise of paradise. Our biggest, our biggest theological and spiritual problem is we can't yet see the goodness of God. We think we do, but we don't. So that's what's going on here. Uh, the the goodness of Christ and his death on the cross, this vicarious satisfaction, removes original guilt from each and every human being as well as every single actual sin, what's done and left undone. That's the wisdom of the cross. That's why the cross is, as, as you look in the text of Scripture, is the center of everything. And it's at the center of everything we do. And then the cross brought to us present tense in baptism, which is a baptism into his cross, into his death and resurrection, Romans 6. And absolution, which is a, the forgiveness of sins proclaimed present tense on the basis of his cross, John 20. And holy communion, the very, th- the very things, his body and blood, which he offered on the cross once and for all, now given for us Christians to eat and to drink for the forgiveness of our sins in the Lord's Supper. That's the foretaste of heaven. That's, that's Christianity. That's the essence of it. So the concept, Scare writes, the concept of substitutionary death explains the assertion of the Nicene Creed that he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, for us on our behalf. Okay, well, as I'm looking, I'm seeing I only have a minute or two left. Maybe that's sufficient. We'll simply break off there for today, having gone through that first paragraph on page 66, and we'll pick up next week going into the sacrificial death of Christ. If you're one who really likes to, to read ahead, I mean, as you could tell already from today, I'm a little bit passionate, passionate about this topic, so I don't know that we'll get quite to the end of the chapter 82 probably just shoot for 10 pages, you know, maybe the, maybe the end of 75. Um, maybe that's a good place to, to shoot for if you like to read ahead. All right, see you next week. The Lord be with you.